Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. I'm ready. All right, let's get underway. I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Connor Haley of Alta Fox Capital. He's a Harvard graduate, magna cum laude. He's the number one ranked investor in the Microcap Club, and he's got uh, some fascinating approaches to investing. We're going to talk to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. Hey, Connor, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm really well, man. First question, what does AltaFox mean? What's the name? <laughs> uh Great question. So first of all, you'd be surprised how hard it is to come up with any hedge fund name that isn't already taken. Uh, shockingly difficult. Um, but I, I chose uh, Alta Fox Capital. So the Alta sort of has a few meanings. So one, it sort of means sort of high or lofty in Latin. You sort of have that, you know, plug. And then uh, it's also sort of the, the street that I sort of grew up on. So I, I sort of like that. Uh, the Fox I took from uh, one of my favorite sort of philosophers I read in college, Isaiah Berlin, has the essay that the hedgehog and the fox, sort of the idea of the fox is uh, multidisciplinary. Uh, I think of investing as multidisciplinary. It's not about being an expert in necessarily one thing. It's about you know taking uh, different approaches, combining them together, and coming to a, a conclusion. Um, so that's that's sort of the genesis. But uh, the, the the real answer is everything else was taken. <laughs> I heard I heard a story once that somebody said they called. And I hope I'm not naming any fun, but it was Black Oak. And the way that they pronounced it, every time they'd call up, it sounded like Black Rock. And then they could get calls with people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that doesn't surprise me. So tell us a little bit about your, your fund. Um, how is it structured? And uh, what, what's this, what, what, are you, what, what are you hunting for? Yeah, so it, it's structured as a you know, traditional hedge fund. Um, I'm, you, know, you know, the bread and butter of the strategy is what I call gems, which are sort of underappreciated, high quality, small cap, tend to be growth businesses that um, in many cases haven't quite leveraged their fixed costs yet. Um, so you know, so there, there's ex an exciting story brewing um, and the evidence is there, but you have to search pretty deep and you also have to take a long-term time horizon to really understand sort of the normalized earnings and free cash flow three to five years out. So tr trying to find things that don't screen um, as particularly cheap on traditional metrics. Uh, but if you sort of look under the hood, there's a really exciting bottom-up story there with an incentivized management team. That's, that's sort of the bread and butter. And then, um, you know, complementing that, I have sort of the, the, the generals portion of the portfolio, which tend to be a little bit higher cap, a little bit lower turnover, uh, but tend to be sort of your traditional compounders, um, which, you know, provide a nice stable base for the portfolio. And, you know, uh, require less maintenance time, candidly, which allows me to then really dig into some of those small micros. And then uh, the last portion of the portfolio is sort of special situations, which 
uh, tend to be higher turnover, very opportunistic sort of spinoffs, liquidations, you know, post bankruptcies, things like that. And you short too? I, I do short as well. I, I, I categorize the fund as long biased. So, you know, shorting is opportunistic um, within my mandate. I don't have to have any short exposure. Um, so it's really shorting for absolute P&L. Um, occasionally to hedge out various specific risks within the, within the portfolio. But uh, yeah, definitely long biased and opportunistic on the short side. Just to go back to one of the things you said about the the gems. So you talk about they haven't quite got over their fixed costs yet. So they look like they're under earning a little bit because the business is still in that very early growth phase. And you're projecting out that in three to five years, they get over, they start eating those fixed costs. And then you, you see the the, the true strength of the business is that is that what you're driving at there? That's right. And it, it, you know, it, and it's not always that you know a fixed cost story, but it often is the case. And um, you know, it, it's really looking for things that have really great unit economics and what can it look like at a bigger scale. And so it could be you know a franchisor um, that uh, you know it just has a corporate function right that that drains a lot of cash, but you don't need to grow it significantly. As you, you know, triple, quadruple, quintuple your units, right? That can be a really exciting story down the line. It could be, you know, a payment processor. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different types of these businesses, which um, you really need to understand the unit economics and then sort of the industry dynamics. Uh, and if you can do that, you can develop a differentiated view, sort of three to five years out. Um, and and hopefully by the time it screens really cheap, it's at a much higher price. And that's typically normally the time I'd be exiting. Right. So in, your, in the presentation that I saw, we, I, I just wanted to talk a little bit about your background. You started in 2007. Uh, so how, how did you get started and, and what attracted you to it? Yeah, I, I got a pretty early start into investing. Um, I would say I was always very interested in sort of analytical games or, or competitions or whatever. I was a, a pretty serious chess player growing up. Um, at one point, was the number one ranked player for my age in Texas. And that was sort of my pursuit when I was younger. But then when I, when I uh, sort of got to high school, um, I took an economics elective my freshman year. And there was a stock market game. You sort of compete against local schools, something like that. And I realized I, I really didn't know anything about it. And so, you know, I started reading different things and really didn't know much. But um, it sort of sparked this fascination. And so I started reading, I would say, you know, one to two books a week, just really getting engrossed in it. And I joined sort of uh, more retail oriented sites like, you know, The Motley Fool and the street.com and uh, became pretty active on those sites. And, you know, fast forward to senior year of high school, I was spending you know, a couple hours a day, like researching investments. I, I still probably didn't know that much, but I knew a lot more than I did freshman year. And um, sort of took the the unusual steps. So I actually reached out to both of those firms, the street.com and the Motley Fool. And uh, to my surprise, they were sort of willing to hire me. And so I took a gap year uh, between high school and college and worked for uh, about six months at the street.com in New York City and about five months at uh, the Motley Fool in Alexandria, Virginia. And so, you know, I got to meet Jim Cramer and I got to you know, play board games with David Gardner. And uh, but really, the most important thing was I learned, you know, I learned a lot about myself and um, learned a lot about investing, and um, I, I think it gave me a, a really great head start and advantage because, you know, when I showed up um, at Harvard's campus as a freshman, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I was very motivated, um, and I didn't sort of waste any time on other things because I knew I wanted to be an investor. I knew eventually I wanted to start my own fund, and I was very sort of focused 
um, in each of my sort of internships and, you know, one winternship and uh, sort of just getting the best experience I could to try to accelerate my learning and get to, a, you know, a risk-taking seat on the investing side as soon as possible. So I was really blessed to have some fantastic mentors and, and opportunities. So my freshman year, I worked for a um, worked for a fund called Osmium Partners out in San Francisco. Uh, I'd written up a uh, uh, an idea, jdate.com, uh, Spark Networks uh, was the name of the company, and uh, they're still around. Um, but uh, at the time, their main sort of uh, uh, their main asset was jdate.com, and I, I wrote it up on Sum Zero. I, I think at the time I was the youngest person to join Sum Zero, and I was interacting with uh, John Lewis, who runs Osmium. Uh, in San Francisco, and we were talking about the name, and sort of like ten message threads through on the Sum Zero platform. I was like, "Hey, by the way, I'm not actually a full-time investor. I'm uh, a freshman at Harvard, and I'd love to work with you." And uh, you know, he was really generous, and and thankfully that I was able to talk my way in a job, and that was a fantastic experience. Then my sophomore year was sort of a similar situation with a fund in Los Angeles, Baker Street Capital, which at the time had a really great track record. Uh, unfortunately, ended up sort of blowing up a couple years later, which was also a great learning experience from my perspective, sort of seeing, you know, the beginning of it, sort of how it developed over time. And then my junior year worked for Goldman Sachs in their special situations group on their multi-strategy investing uh, desk, basically investing Goldman capital uh, on balance sheet capital and, you know, public equities and public debt. Learned a lot about capital structure. It's a really fantastic opportunity. And then I was able to leverage that into joining Scopia Capital a uh, multi-billion dollar fund in New York City and sort of being their first analyst hired straight out of undergrad, which really was my goal was to join a, uh, join a, a strong investing group with a good process straight out of school. Um, so it was really fortunate, uh, you know, but it all really stemmed from that early interest, which I was able to then sort of leverage one experience at a time. Uh, so, but I, I've certainly been very fortunate to learn from a lot of, you know, I think really great investors. What's your favorite chess opening? <laughs> Well, you know, I always, somewhat similar to my investing style, I always favored um, sort of more obscure openings. The that, bird. That, exactly. No, actually, F4. <laughs> um, Is that true? Yeah, F4. Like, I did play that for a while. Um, I, I, tend to, I tend to favor obscure openings, which maybe weren't the most sound, you know, from a computer analysis perspective, but I knew- Blows I people's would... brains when they see it. Exactly. I would know a lot more. Uh, I would know the theory a lot more than the next guy. And yeah. so I, I'd sort of force someone onto my domain. Um, it's so always I, very uncomfortable when it's attacking that, <laughs> that uh, King's Gambit or whatever. It's, uh, is it Queen's Gambit there? And then, uh, yeah, they don't know how to play it. Yeah, that's a good position. I like the English <laughs> for the most part. There you go. Uh, so why small, why, why, why small and micro cap? Yeah, so I, I learned pretty early on, like even in high school, um, even though I didn't know, you know, a ton about investing, I knew uh, enough to know that I didn't know a lot. And I knew that I didn't have the resources that, you know, a large investment fund and, or hedge funds had. And, and so I realized early on, if, if, I, if I wanted to achieve, you know, market beating returns with, uh, you know, a relatively elementary knowledge level and no resources really, um, the only way I was going to be able to do that was to hunt in a different market. And I sort of discovered small micros as a result. And similar to, I guess, like the birds opening or obscure chess openings, like that was microcaps for me. And it was like, wow, like I can actually talk to manager teams. I can actually um, understand these drivers and sort of outwork other people because 
there aren't big funds doing a lot of work on on these names. And so uh, that's how I sort of stumbled into it. And then, you know, at Harvard, I was really involved in the Harvard Financial Analyst Club, which is sort of the largest undergraduate finance club on campus. And, um, you know, I was in the club for four years and basically helped transform their process from, you know, when I started, they were, you know, pitching stocks on like, they were pitching Apple and, you know, these other companies. And like, you know, it was a college pitch and there was nothing really extraordinary about it and no value add. By the end, we were pitching obscure microcaps and talking to the CEO and going to some microcap conferences and like really doing value added work. And, you know, it was reflected in the, in the returns. And so, um, yeah, I sort of just discovered microcaps because there was nowhere else I was going to be able to invest at that time and, and, you know, pretend I had any advantage. So uh, let's talk a little bit about your long criteria. Uh, how do you, how do you uh, once you've sort of screened for these stocks, what, what, are you, what are you looking for? Yeah, you know, I have a big bias towards quality businesses, you know, and that can be defined in a lot of different ways. But, um, you know, for me, it, it starts with the unit economics, right? You've really got to understand that. I think, you know, uh, a lot of investors sometimes miss that when they're looking at consolidated results, which can sometimes be obscured or hidden. But get to the heart of the economics, unit economics. Um, how much does it cost to open a store? You know, what's that return look like? What's the break even? You know, depending on the business, it's going to it's going to differ. But understand the unit economics and understand sort of how the cost structure develops over time. Um, so for me, it's yeah, it's high returns on capital. Um, it's it's a really competitive advantage, right? A durable competitive advantage that can sustain those returns on capital, because ultimately, I think the market is you know, fairly efficient at valuing stocks for the most part. And, you know, if you give the market a company with a lot of research coverage, very little change, a ton of comparables, et cetera, the market's more likely than not going to spit out a value that's fairly efficient. Um, so I'm really looking for the sort of exceptions where the market may struggle to value something. So, you know, situations where it doesn't have a lot of analyst coverage, where it's maybe a, a newer type of business model that it's less comfortable analyzing or valuing um, a situation where there's a tremendous amount of change um, that has to be understood not one year in advance from you know a management guidance, but a multi-year sort of story. Really looking for, uh, you know, if the market's really good at valuing sort of vanilla stocks, I'm looking for sort of the uh, exotic, you know, ice cream flavor that uh, is difficult and, uh, you know, really requires a lot of fundamental due diligence. And what, one of the things in your presentation, you say you're looking for that masking effect. Is that that, uh, that the high fixed cost relative to the small setup or, or what is that? Yeah, that, that would be an example of one masking effect. Um, you know, another could be, um, you know, there, there are lots of different types. It, it could be maybe what they own are, are intangible assets, which are difficult to value, right, which may not show up right now on the income statement or the cash flow statement, but have a lot of strategic value. There's a lot of different types of masking effects, but I think that's important. And, you know, with small and micros, like the fact that something's a micro cap, I think in and of itself is a masking effect. Now, you know, if you can pile on multiple sort of masking effects uh, with a really exciting fundamental story, that's when you can sometimes find some really outstanding um, stories and, and, and sort of uh, setups on, for, for equities. But uh, yeah, it can take a variety of different forms. And what about on the short side? What, what are you looking for there? Yeah, on the short side, I'm really looking for um, competitively disadvantaged businesses where I feel like they're just secular pressures that uh, can't be escaped. So, 
um, you know, I'm not short concurrently, but a name I've been short in the past, for example, has been Harley Davidson. You know, it's just a situation where they've got a great legacy historical brand, but the demographics are so damaging for them going forward, and there's really nothing they can do, right? And they're trying. They're, they're coming out with an electric bike. Like, they're doing all these other things, but at the end of the day, millennials are less interested in buying motorcycles and even when they are they opt for cheaper motorcycles and so that's a very difficult like multi-year headwind along with sort of you know all these other capital intensive sort of issues and trade and whatever that that's the type of business why are millennials less interested in motorcycles (laughs) i mean look for one they're really expensive right for two i think it's just a generational thing like millennials seem to be more interested in you know experiences than than item than material things um you know, I, I don't know if I have the perfect answer, but I, the data is very clear. It's, uh, you know, you, you look at sort of the, the demographics um, and it's not positive for capital intensive uh, motorcycle manufacturers. It's not an age thing. Like you don't just get to 55 and decide you got to buy a, a hog or something like that. I mean, we'll, I guess we'll see. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll see. But if you compare like the current millennial base versus, you know, historical buyers at the same age sort of on a cohort analysis like it's not an encouraging trend um so you know we'll, we'll see and, and i don't have a position today but uh, uh it's not something i would want to bet on the long side it's funny it's an interesting position because i've seen guys i saw eddie elfenbein on twitter say that they have this uh the moat is the fact that they don't sell motorcycles they sell harley davidson's they sell hogs you know but you know, I, I but I I have no view one way or the other. I've just but it's interesting to hear a different view on it. Yeah, I mean, they definitely have a, a strong brand. I, I guess I would I would just question like who is that who is that brand strong with, right. <laughs> and, and is that is that an increasing or decreasing sort of uh, you know population and, and more important than population purchasing power, uh, right? right. And, and and so you know. I I don't have a position today, and I'm sure you know potentially at the right price everything can be interesting. But uh, those are the types of businesses which you know are, are capital intensive, have strong headwinds that can't be escaped by even the strongest management teams in innovation, um, and just are, are sort of tough to uh, t- tough to see how the next five years are a lot better than the last. So take us through your investment process. Um, how, how do you generate ideas? Yeah, it's a, it's a combination of factors. So, uh, you know, I do have about a dozen screens I run on uh, about a monthly basis and, you know, typically screening for very specific things. They tend to be less um, uh, valuation driven, more quality driven. We're looking for quality because, you know, a big premise behind my strategy is that, you know, it's 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 really hard to find, uh, it's hard to screen for really high quality businesses early. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I try to find sort of early ingredients, but then it's, it's a lot of digging within the results. Um, so I, I do run a, uh, about a dozen screens on a monthly basis. Um, in addition to that, I feel like I have a really good small cap network, whether it be through microcap club, whether it be through other, you know, uh, buy side investors that I've worked with or interacted with in the past. Um, I feel like I have a, a great sort of network to, to leverage ideas there. Uh, you know, and then conferences, research, you know, meeting companies, et cetera. I, I do a lot of travel to company headquarters. It's a big part of my process is meeting management teams, really um, 
you know, I, I, all my ideas start with a, a hypothesis, and then I, I have to go out and try to prove or disprove it. And you know, meeting management teams is a big part of that. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a combination of factors, but ultimately just looking for um, you know a handful of really good good ideas a year. Tell me a little bit about the diligence process. Yeah. So, you know, it starts, obviously, once I sort of have a population of interesting ideas, I sort of throw them on what I call the big board, which is basically a glorified Excel sheet that pulls in various data from data sources and some metrics, et cetera. But it's really a priority list. And, you know, at the top is the current portfolio, and it has sort of bare base and bull scenarios, which ultimately spit into um, a projected IRR for, for the investment. And... Uh, you know, so I, I'm always comparing the current portfolio against itself, along with the watch list. To the watch list, basically competing for allocation of gross gross dollars. And um, so my diligence process, though, starts by throwing the interesting names on sort of the watch list. Uh, obviously, going through all the primary filings, really digging through. Ultimately, if I think something is interesting enough, I'll build a model, pretty detailed model, and just try to understand like what has happened historically to this business. What are the key drivers and uh, you know, what do you have to believe either on the long or the short side to understand to, to, to be a bull or a bear? Um, and then finally, it's really just trying to understand the best bear and bull debates, right? Like, you know, if somebody's short, I want to talk to them. If somebody's long, I want to talk to them. I want to talk to, you know, it's ex-employees, suppliers, competitors, like you name it. I want to rip this business apart and be able to um, tell you like what the essence of the business is, which I think is really important and something I've sort of learned over time is, you know, sometimes businesses aren't actually what they say they are, meaning, you know, for example, like with Harley Davidson, like, right, uh, maybe not the best example, but sure, they sell motorcycles, but really the essence is they're trying to sell an experience. They're trying to sell a lifestyle, right? So they're really in like the marketing, uh, in the marketing business. And yeah, the bikes need to be high quality and good, but they're selling a brand and understanding like the essence of the business of, you know, what it might say in the 10K versus what it really is. And how they succeed or fail, I think, is really important. And then, um, you know, just trying to diligence uh, both the long and the short side and, and, and rip apart the business. Uh, ultimately, trying to get to a, a fundamental view of normalized earnings and free cash flow over the next three to five years, which then are spit into those scenarios, which then feed your IRs, which then feed your position sizing. Got it. And so, ha how are you sizing positions? So, will you find something good at inception? Uh, and then through the whole process as it goes up, are you trimming and so on? Yeah, so the first part is I have this sort of a disciplined um, risk limits, no matter how much I like an idea. So a max position at cost for me on the long side is 15%. And I've only done that once in the portfolio's history. I've liked things a lot, but uh, it takes a lot for me to put on a, a full 15% position. And I think that's just because, you know, I have seen other funds fail. I have seen what happens when you really like ideas and you get carried away. And um, the reality is there are always things you don't know and there are always things that can hurt you. And so even if you've spent the last year researching something, you're still not working in the business and there are things you can overlook. So I think it's important to stay in the game and not let one position ever, ever harm you too much. So for me, that comes out to a 15% max at cost. Um, but then, you know, if if I'm, it's a, one of the hardest questions for me is when to put on a total position, right? Like how much work is enough? Because you're never done researching position. You're never 100% there. Maybe you get to 90% in an extreme scenario, maybe not. But you're, there's always more work, more checks that you can do. And so um, 
typically it will start out as something like I've read the filings. I think it's really interesting. I've built an initial model. I've done some, some supplier, employee checks, et cetera. I, I, my hypothesis is turning out to be likely correct based on my diligence. I'm going to start it out with say, you know, a three to 4% position and then I'm going to keep doing work. And, you know, over time, maybe the price goes down on, you know, non-fundamental news. And so the IRR improves or, Maybe the IRR gets better because my fundamental estimates go up as I do more diligence. Um, but I'm, I'm always trimming, adding, et cetera, based on my projected view of IRR, which is really the, the summary of all my fundamental work. And then you have a monitoring process as well, which is, as you've discussed, looking at the potential in inclusions in the portfolio against the existing ones. Is that, is that what that process is? Exactly. Yeah. So I'm also working in addition to, you know, bear basin bull IRRs spitting out sort of an expected value for the current portfolio. I'm also always working on doing that same exercise for the watch list, some of which already have, you know, IRRs, some of which I'm still building out the models, building out the scenarios. And so in updating those, you know, on a quarterly, typically quarterly basis. So, um, yeah, you know, there, there's some businesses on my watch list that I really like, but the price just isn't quite right. Um, so, you know, if we were to get a sell off and, um, I felt like, you know, the, the fundamental views didn't really change, like they might find their way to the portfolio or, um, you know, if something really runs up in my portfolio and I feel like the fundamental change, you know, the fundamental earnings, uh, and free cash estimates haven't really changed, then I might trim that or exit entirely and swap into something on the watch list that maybe has gotten more attractive. So it's always, you know, sort of a, a Tetris exercise of moving things around and trying to optimize. Uh, but it, I, I try to really make all the decisions based on, you know, my, my fundamental views of, you know, three to typically three to five year forward normal normalized earnings and free cash flow. So how many positions do you have on uh, at any given time? Uh, you know, how many positions do you have on now? Yeah, it's typically about 15 positions on the long side and, you know, a handful, you know, one to five on the short side uh, with, sh with the shorts being considerably smaller in allocation. But um you know, it, 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 it can vary a lot because you know, one position can be up to 15%. So if you have a couple high conviction positions that you know work out, for example, and you trim them, that's that's a pretty significant gross allocation. So, um, you know, positions range from typically you know, 3% to, to, to 12, 15 is rare. I don't have any at the moment, but um, uh, and then on the short side, they're typically one to 5%. And how big do you let them grow before you start trimming them back, before they start making you nervous? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so there's no strict sort of discipline rule on that like there is for the for at cost, with the reason being I don't – if something is really phenomenally working out, I don't want to be forced to sell. Um, that being said, I do have sort of a soft idea in my mind. So I've had – I've been fortunate to have a couple big winners that were either 12 or 15% at cost. and. I started basically trimming once it got to around 20% of the portfolio. And, you know, if a position is running in your favor in a massive way, and you're continually trimming at 20%, like that's still a big position, right? <laughs> it's still a big position. You're still very much participating in the upside, but you're also locking in some gains as you sort of, as the position appreciates. And so, you know, that's the approach I've taken in the past. And I have some flexibility there because every situation is different, but that's generally how I approach it. So let's talk about edges. This is an interesting part of your presentation. You say that there, is, there are three forms of edges, or, or you have three forms of edges, informational, analytic, and institutional. Can you just take us through those edges and, and how they apply to you? 
Sure, sure. So, you know, the first being informational. So, you know, this is like the holy grail of investing, right? Uh, it's very difficult to have an informational edge, but it's not impossible. Um, and this is really, uh, you know, scouring all of your fundamental work for unique data points, basically. So it could be, you know, right now, like all the rage in buy side investing is like data sets, right? You know, hedge funds will buy like really expensive, you know, credit card data sets. Some of these data sets cost, you know, seven figures a year, right? Uh, sometimes more, I've seen more. And, you know, they'll have a team of PhDs and quants like behind them, right? And so that's like an example. They're trying to get an informational edge. That's the holy grail. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily require that, particularly in smaller companies. And frankly, my, my experience has been a lot of those data sets, because they're consumed by multiple funds, tend to be commoditized over time. And so they're, they're sort of incorporated in the price over time. Um, but that being said, you know, there could be unique, uh, unique data points and, and edges. So, you know, it could be a supplier check, right? You could have, um, you could build up a, a network of suppliers. You can talk to them on a monthly or quarterly basis. You can build up your own data set of like how a business is performing based on, you know, some of the businesses they sell to. Um, and then you have your own data point. And, you know, if you're getting both qualitative and quantitative uh, inputs on a regular interval, interval basis, that's a unique data point. Whether it has significance or not, you have to see. Uh, but that potentially can lead to an informational edge. Um, you know, it, it, but it's basically just going out there and, and talking to a bunch of people and trying to ultimately have some quantitative unique data point that no one else has or very few have that can allow you to find or spot inflection points in the business, positive or negative. Um, the second one will be would be analytical edge. So uh, this is this is sort of the edge where you don't have different information than anybody else, but you're processing it in a different way, which gives you an advantage. And so, you know, I think, I think the most common is sort of time horizon, time arbitrage. You know, particularly in small growing businesses. You know, if everyone else is valuing it on a one year forward basis, but you're trying to understand the drivers on a three to five year basis, that really can be an edge. And I think it's it's often talked about, um, but often poorly applied. And, uh, I, but I think it, it really matters is like, how are you viewing your time horizon? And I think it's a delicate balance and every investor has to find their own style for time horizon. For me, I found in general, three to five years to be a pretty pretty good sweet spot just because I feel like it's, it's short enough where I can, I can estimate with some reasonable degree of accuracy, the drivers, the risks, et cetera, but it's not, but it's not so short that um, everyone's looking at it like a one year forward basis. Um, so everyone's got to find their own sweet spot, sweet spot. And it, it depends on the business as well. And then finally institutional, you know, I think this really is, um, this really relates to what, what types of factors are influencing your decision-making on a daily basis. And are those are those rational or not? And the reality is, I think a lot of professional managers have, um, you know, forces that uh, influence them negatively. Uh, whether it be, you know, they don't have a lockup, they don't they have don't have the right investors, they are trying to make up for poor historical performance or whatever. Uh, they don't have the right incentives with for both themselves and for sort of their their investors and. Uh, I think ha having the right investor base really is a competitive advantage and having the right investor terms that is consistent with both your investing style and your, and your sort of strategy. Let's talk a little bit about risk management. Um, you, you say that you, I think that there are three ways that you 
uh, approach risk management. So one of the first things you look at is you just risk averse in your security selection. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, particularly within small caps, I, I find that a lot of other small cap investors tend to, including some very successful ones and unsuccessful ones, uh, tend to have uh, a, a different sort of approach to to this subset of the universe. Not all, but uh, many are always looking for, you know, these small caps that have tremendous upside. And they're always looking at the upside first, right? And it's like, that's one of the allures of small caps is they're small, therefore they can grow many times in value. And while that's true and nice, they often look at the upside at, to the detriment of, of the downside. And, uh, you know, I tend to be pretty downside focused uh, for the most part. You know, it's, it's always a balance, of course, but I'm really looking for um, very high quality business models that, you know, can weather um, most economic climates. And that, that doesn't, and are also not dependent on, on a lot of external factors for success, right? Like if you, uh, if you can control your own destiny, right, as a business, um, that's a much better position to be in than requiring a really strong economy or requiring a really, um, you know, attractive trade wars, you know, trade relations, I should say, right? Like you don't want to be subject to all these other risks. And look, every business has some external risks and factors. And, you know, sometimes there can be positions in a portfolio that it's okay to take on economic sensitivity, but you got to be really cognizant of like what position, what percentage of your portfolio that is and, and be really objective with yourself. So, you know, I love finding businesses that uh, can control their own destiny and succeed in any sort of economic climate. And I think some of my biggest winners this year have sort of fit that description. Uh, you also talk about risk-averse position sizing. I think we've covered that in some in some detail. But so let's talk about uh, risk-averse portfolio construction. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think that can mean a, a couple of different things. But um, you know, one is making sure you understand what risk you're taking on from each of your positions and what that looks like on a um, on on an aggregate basis on an aggregated basis. So you know, it's okay to have an economically sensitive restaurant stock in a portfolio, right? But if you have a lot, but if you have that along with a, a boat manufacturer and, you know, a motorcycle manufacturer, right? Like suddenly maybe those are all three attractive fundamental ideas based on what we know about the economy today. But now your, your portfolio is fundamentally um, highly sensitive to, uh, to high, you know, high end discretionary spending, highly sensitive to changes in trade war, like all these other things. And I think it's really important to understand those factors um, when you're sort of building up your portfolio, because ideally you'd have, you know, 10, 15 names of highly idiosyncratic fundamental bottom-up theses that uh, are largely immune from economic, uh, uh, you know, from economic sensitivity. And that's, that's an unrealistic expectation for the entire portfolio, but um, at the same time, I think if you're not thinking about how those things intertwine, you can, <laughs> you think you're betting on the brand of Harley, right? But in reality, like your portfolio is a high beta, high beta bet on high end discretionary spending, you know? Uh, so I, I think that's, that's really important to, to think about as well. Uh, you, in your presentation, you make uh, the case for small and micro cap. And there are a few really interesting data points in this one, so I want to take you through it. First of all, let's let's discuss the returns and the, the study that you included, or the studies that you included. Yeah, so um, you know, I, I think it's it's generally accepted that you know small and micro caps have 
um, outperformed sort of other indices over time on a very long time series. You know, we're currently in a period of pretty dramatic underperformance, which I think is pretty interesting in and of itself. But uh, yeah, I think the idea is uh, historically you've been paid to um, take on a little bit of an illiquidity premium, I guess, as some people would say. Um, so small micro caps have, have outperformed. But even more than that, I think, uh, you know, micro caps, I, I believe, are the only segment of the market where historically active managers have actually added value, which is pretty interesting, right? It's like you could pick an average micro cap manager and you would still come out ahead, right? Uh, which is pretty interesting and certainly cannot be said about the other sort of subsets of the equity market. And so, you know, my goal is to obviously be well above average manager, but it's a little comforting to know that even if I do okay, like, you know, m maybe my investors will still come out ahead. It's like Lake Wobegon. Every manager's <laughs> above average. Yeah, exactly. Or above the median. <laughs> uh, so talk about diversification a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think, um, you know, talked about like risk, risk limits, which I think is important. Um, you know, not having any position above 15% at cost. Um, but within that, I think it's also important to um, sort of what I was saying earlier about structuring your bets and understanding what you're betting on. So like an example of that would be, you know, I, I wrote up a company in a, in a previous quarterly letter called, called Expel, which, uh, you know, which basically provides um, paint protection film, PPF called for, for new cars. And so it's basically... A, an expensive adhesive tape that goes over a car, which protects it that you can't even see uh, unless you're really up close, which uh, protects it from rock chips and other things like that. I really liked the fundamental bottom-up thesis and I wanted to make it a large position, but at the same time, I was a little bit concerned about, you know, how tight it was to new car sales and, you know, how that might get hit in a trade war, recession, et cetera. And, you know, that was a debate about how important that was between bulls and bears, but it was a concern. Um, if it was going to be a big position in the portfolio. So from my perspective, I sort of had two options, right? One was, okay, you like the bottom-up thesis, so invest in a very small allocation so that if these sort of um, macro risks actually materialize, you're not hurt too, too poorly because I'm, I'm a pretty risk-averse investor in terms of you know, not trying to, uh, trying to prevent capital loss. Uh, so that's one option. But the problem is then you don't get as much of the bottom-up thesis as you want. Uh, the alternative is you make it a bigger position and then you find some some other shorts that are standalone attractive shorts, but also share some of that high end discretionary spend exposure so that if that segment of the market, that sort of factor rolls over, um, you you can outperform. Uh, you can outperform on sort of that basis through your shorts uh, doing worse than sort of Expel would. So like that's an example where I'm trying to think about. Um, I'm trying to think about factor exposure. I'm trying to think about how, how the portfolio will respond in a variety of economic scenarios. I'm trying to position it, it for success regardless of the, I'm really trying to bet, up, bet on bottom-up theses, not you know, uh, macro variables. The, uh, the smaller micro caps also add some diversification to uh, an allocator's portfolio. I think that that was this part of your case for small and micro cap that you have the, the benefits of diversification through exposure to that uh, to that part of the market? Yeah, certainly. I, I mean, historically, microcaps have been much less correlated to other, you know, subsets of the equity market. And, you know, I, I think that's for fairly obvious reasons. I mean, they're not, they tend to not be included in many of the main indices. They don't have the same fund flow. 
impacts. Um, you know, they don't have often don't have coverage or much coverage. So, uh, yeah, I think broadly speaking, investors are uh, very much under allocated to microcaps, and part of that's because they're not really indexable. <laughs> like the the Russell microcap index, like there are indices, the Russell microcap index. I don't think it does a very good job of capturing. Um, you know, what microcaps are. It has a super wide range of market caps. Um, like the, the entire premise of micro, of sort of microcaps is it's a somewhat capacity constrained strategy. And that doesn't suit well for indexing <laughs> that, that sort of that subset of the equity markets. And so I think it's this sort of fascinating structural market that um, has persisted for a long period of time. And is somewhat immune to the sort of indexing factors and most people don't know about and, and it gets a bad reputation for you know the bad actors right i mean one thing I, I tell investors that sort of talk to me about my philosophy is my perspective despite being a small microcap investor is that the majority of small microcaps are low quality garbage businesses the majority of management teams are also low quality and kind of garbage uh that being said i still focus a majority of my time in that space because the reward for sifting through that garbage and finding what I call the gems is so asymmetric to the upside. You're rewarded for doing that work, for doing good fundamental work. And that's why there is an opportunity. If, if all these micro caps were high quality and you could just index them, then I don't think the same opportunity would exist. What's your definition of, of small and micro cap in terms of market cap? Yeah, everybody seems to have their own definition. Um, you know, I. I think of small cap as sort of, um, call it under, it changes by the day, but under 750 million sort of. So call it like, uh, uh, you know, 300, uh, a billion maybe might be a, a reasonable um, way to look at it. And that's really a range where most reasonably large funds can't really invest. Um, and then sort of micro cap would be more in the sub 300 million. Why do you think that that sector has, or, or that market cap, uh, that part of the market cap has underperformed over the last three or five years, whatever it's been? Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating question, um, and I'm not I'm not sure I, I have the perfect answer. I try not to uh, be too confident on on large big picture questions like this, um, but I, I will say I, I think it definitely creates an opportunity uh, along with just the dynamics in the buy side industry. I mean, in general, uh, the data is pretty clear. Larger hedge fund, like the biggest hedge funds are getting bigger. They're attracting more dollars. You know, there's a variety of reasons for that. Uh, but, you know, it's been a tough environment for small funds from a capital raising perspective, from an index performance perspective, focused on small, small cuts. Um, but I think this really creates an attractive setup you know, over the next five years, because ultimately um, I'm excited about having launched this, you know, last year in an environment where it was difficult to launch uh, because I, I think there's just less competition looking for these names. And um, I think it creates a pretty, I think small and micro cap investors should be excited about the opportunity set over the next five years. Have you seen compression in valuations th through the period of underperformance? Um, yeah, you know, I'd have to pull like the aggregate data and I think it's difficult to pull the aggregate data for things like the, you know, microcaps because so many of them are garbage and lose a lot of money, right? So anytime you're mixing, you know, uh, profitability metrics or whatever, like you're, you're mixing in a lot of like highly loss making companies. So it's a little bit, there's a lot of noise in the data. 
uh, that that being said, um, from a you know, uh, from my own perspective, certainly I'm seeing I'm seeing things that are getting more interesting uh, for sure, and you know things on my watch list that I was sort of waiting for the right price that are now sort of almost there, and so I, you know I'm still being patient here. I think um, uh, I'm, I'm being patient, but in general, I think the opportunity set for small and micro over the next five years is pretty attractive, both from a bottom-up fundamental perspective from companies and valuations and growth prospects, but also just from a competition standpoint. Uh, I think uh, it's been a difficult environment for small and micro-cap funds, and I think that you know the, the, the funds that are able to you know, buck the trend, outperform, th- you know, survive and thrive will, will have an opportunity set available to them that is pretty attractive based on historical standards. Why do you think the average... Uh, small and micro cap investor tends to outperform, or the median tends to outperform the the the, the median return there. I think it's because there are so many garbage small and micro cap companies, right? Like, if you just ignore like promotional, you know, scammy management teams, like, and that's all that you did and you invested in everything else, like that should probably do okay. You should do better than investing in the scammy promotional management teams, right? And there are a lot of them. Um, if you just avoid the all all hype, all sizzle, and no substance names. You should probably do better than the guy who's buying the you know management to the moon, you know uh, bull, bullish case, right? Like if you just take a a uh, if you just take a well grounded um, common sense approach to investing in you know quality businesses at reasonable prices, I think you can do pretty well and outperform. One of the interesting parts of your presentation, uh, you say that there are some unique risks and opportunities in small and micro caps. So just take us through what some of those unique risks are in the first instance. I think you probably just discussed one then, management, but, but please. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely think it's true. I, I think, you know, in a similar way that like biotech investing or energy investing or financial investing is often considered like a specialty field, right? Like uh, generalists don't don't normally want to get you know in the weeds on some energy producer right it's just a requires special analysis like you, you might end up being the dummy at the table the pots at the table I think uh, uh, in microcaps it's not it, that can sometimes also be the case um, you know when you're you, you can sort of have a set of assumptions that are generally true and applicable and you'll be okay with in say mid to large cap investing like this management team isn't outright lying to me Right. Obviously, there are exceptions, but in general, that's probably going to be be the case. Like they're going to be professional. They're not like all their data is going to be, you know, factually correct. Uh, they're going to be generally competent people. Uh, they're not going to, uh, you know, engage in, you know, super illegal activity. Like there's all these different things, and of course there are exceptions and frauds, all aspects of the, uh, of of market caps. But within small and micros, you get some really crazy stories. Uh, you know, often surrounding management teams that just don't care, either they don't care at all about shareholders or um, sometimes it's not even uh, sort of nefarious. Sometimes they don't know, right? Like sometimes management teams don't know how to run a publicly traded company because they're new at it. And particularly companies that were really small have gone from super small to kind of small. There's often a, a, a lag in um, their approach to the public markets and communicating with investors, which can often create an opportunity, frankly, because um, you know they, they haven't gotten out and told their story yet. So uh, you know there are opportunities there, but there are also risks there that are very much unique to small and microcap investing, which personally I think makes it more fun 
you know, I have, in addition to doing this for a job, I really have a passion for investing and I like the hunt of investing, right? I like talking to new businesses, management teams, business models and analyzing them. Uh, you know, there are plenty of investors that make a very good living investing in the same 40 large cap, you know, restaurants and building very detailed models and changing quarterly basis. And that's, that's fine, more power to you. But I really enjoy the hunt of investing and small and micro caps. It's like the wild west. You, you never know what you're going to what you're going to find, but you always got to be ready. And you say sometimes you're the first analyst to visit the company. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. There was a one of my bigger winners um, over this past year. Like, I, I tried to get a, a visit with the company, and you know they were kind of hesitant, and it was clear they, they they had no IR function. The CEO, who was the founder, owned a lot of stock, but didn't. Um, yeah, it just wasn't very comfortable talking to investors. That just wasn't his personality, and so there was this lag. And they had been on a really nice run. Uh, in terms of you know stock performance and fundamentals, but uh, uh, yeah, so I basically had to convince them to let me fly out and meet with them for like an hour. And uh, you know, I said, look, I've spoken to these 10x employees, I've spoken to these suppliers, and I've done all this work. Here's what I've done. I'd love to come meet with you for an hour at your headquarters any day in the next month. Just tell me, I'll fly out there. And you know, it was funny. The only reason I got the appointment, I, I got the meeting, was. They were interested in speaking to one of one of the people that I had listed, uh, and they didn't know how I had contacted them. So, uh, you know, I was able to add some value to them, and at the same time, learn a lot more about the business. And you know, since then, they've really improved their investor relations work, and the stock's done very well. But uh, yeah, that just doesn't happen in mid and large caps. Um, you know, they typically have a professional investor relations team. It's just a totally different situation. You say that you need a different approach to valuation in small and micro cap. What, what, do, you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, because they're so small, like there's a there's a bunch of different factors that you have to take into account that are often not as important in say mid or large caps. So you know, we talked about the fixed cost. That's a big thing. Like really understanding the cost structure and you know how much is fixed, how much is variable, how does this develop over time is particularly important for smaller micro caps. Um, you know, I, I think uh, uh, understanding sort of like the industry structure. This is something I spend a lot of time on because, you know, I'm, I'm sort of taking a view of I want to invest in high quality names, sort of leaders uh, in their industry, but I'm investing in small companies. So how does that reconcile together, right? And industry structure is really important as a result. So if you if you want to invest, invest in breed in really high quality companies, but you're investing in small companies, it means a couple one of a couple of things. One, it could be a really fragmented industry, right, where they may be the biggest player or close to the biggest player, but everybody else is like really small. And so it's this really fragmented industry and maybe they're best in breed. Um, it could be that it's a really niche industry, right? So they're the leader, but it's a small industry, right? Um, you know, it could be a really new industry, uh, right? Which is just, just come on the horizon. So there aren't any other big established players and they're trying to, they're trying to be that guy. But, you know, I, I try to, I try to spend a lot of time on that industry structure because I, I want to be invested in sort of best in breed, really high quality, and only certain industry structures suit that. I don't want to be like the fifth, you know, the the 12th largest player in a really competitive industry where two massive large caps are like investing a ton of money. Like that type of setup generally, there are always exceptions, but generally is not something I'm going to be that interested in. 
Do you want to go through uh, two case studies that you included in your presentation? The first one is 3PEA and the ticker is TPNL. Let's start with it. How did you find it? How do you analyze it? What, what do you see? Yeah, Where do you so, see the opportunity? Yeah, so 3P International. So they've since changed their name to PaySign, P-A-Y-S. And um, that was actually the company I was referencing earlier where they wouldn't meet with me. And uh, I had to sort of convince them to, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty fascinating story. I mean, when I... I sort of I found it on a screen. It seemed really interesting from a fundamental perspective, but it was hard for me to figure out exactly what they did. You know, I went on their website, I searched a bunch of things, but basically they made a majority of their revenue, uh, over 90%, um, from basically facilitating payments to plasma donors through prepaid debit cards, a really niche industry. And uh, yet the word plasma did not show up in their 10K even one time. Right. Like really crazy. Right. Like this is a plasma payment company and plasma doesn't show up in the 10K. Like there just was so little out there. They didn't speak to any investors. They were pretty new. And so, you know, this got me intrigued because it's like, wow, these fundamentals are really attractive. Uh, it's right in the sort of ballpark of size that I'm looking for. And, you know, no one seems to know what they do. So I started doing digging, started figuring out more stuff, started doing you know, sort of my whole process of calls and checks, et cetera, and developed this view that, wow, this is like actually a phenomenal business. Um, you know, plasma grows about 10% a year. It has for the last decade. It's projected to grow 10% for the next decade. It has basically zero sensitivity to macro factors whatsoever. These are life's, these sustain, these are life sustaining, um, you know, donations that go, they go into drugs that are life sustaining drugs for people. Um, like there's, there's zero sensitivity, financial crisis. You can go look like plasma, guess what? Plasma donations actually grew in the financial crisis. Um, and, and you know, the, the actual dollar growth was pretty similar. It's double digit. So really, it's really rare to find an industry that can grow double digit secularly, um, with no macro sensitivity that also has basically zero foreign competition. So the U S is a net exporter of plasma. They export about, they supply basically 70% of the world's plasma. Uh, and the reason is FDA drugs are required to use U.S. sourced plasma uh, for a variety of sort of safety, quality control reasons. And so, um, you know, there's no synthetic substitute. Uh, so it, it, basically you have to have human plasma. And the way you pay these donors is prepaid debit cards. And the way you, there's only two players, Wirecard and 3P International, now called PaySign. And PaySign... So it's a duopoly, and PaySign is out-innovating the larger player. And, you know, it's it was 100% basically of their business at the time, no longer is. And so they were investing a lot more in it. They were much more focused on it. They were much more responsive to their plasma customers. And so you had this, like, amazing industry backdrop. You had a leader that's part of a duopoly that's set to gain significant share. Um, you have basically no price sensitivity because the customers are paying the fee, not the plasma donation uh, centers. Um, and, and so it, it's like this phenomenal industry setup and it's, you know, and it was about to leverage its fixed costs in a, you know, remarkable way. So it's, it's been basically doubling its EBITDA on revenue in excess of 50% just from plasma. And you know, now they're leveraging that into some other industry verticals as well, but that's, that's a pretty, um, it was a pretty unique setup. Why do you need a specialized payment service for plasma? Yeah. Uh, there's a couple, couple of reasons for it. Well, one you have to pay them via prepaid debit cards, basically, because there's no other way to pay them. Uh, you can't really do cash or check because uh, 
a large percentage of these donors don't have bank accounts, but yeah. are sort of part of the under or unbanked. Um, and then two, like there's a lot of fraud and theft that goes along when, when you're dealing with cash. And so basically 99.9% .9 of the industry uses prepaid debit cards now. Um, and you know you need you need somebody to be the, the program manager of that uh, to be able to reload cards, have it hooked up to the donor management system within the plasma center. There's regulations around how often you can donate, um, how much you can donate, all these kinds of things. You need somebody who is, and also there's a significant amount of um, customer service required for uh, you know people calling in with issues on their card, questions about the card, et cetera, in, in multiple languages. And so uh, you need someone who is focused on that market, who can provide a seamless service to ultimately these vertically integrated large plasma companies that don't really care so much about the plasma donation. They really care, they're in the business of selling really expensive life-saving drugs and they need the plasma as a raw ingredient for that. And so they just wanna make sure it's smooth, easy, let somebody else handle it all the customer service, et cetera. And they're not even really paying for it because the customers are. So just you know, make it <laughs> make it seamless and the switching costs are super high. So that's why there's really only two players and you know, the company's never lost a single center um, in their corporate history and they're typically signing, I think it's like three to five year contracts. So it's a really phenomenal industry. Is it a position you still have on? Uh, it is, I actually, um, you know, I profiled it about in the mid twos, about 250. Um, in my quarterly letter and on Value Investors Club as well. Um, it you know it ran up to a peak at 18. I think I was out in the mid-teens. Um, but uh, you know it recently fell on lowering the revenue guidance, fell to you know below to 13 and then below 10. So I, I've been actually nibbling on it a little bit recently uh, just because I think uh, I think the business is really phenomenal. I think there are still some aspects of part of their newer growth that aren't well appreciated. And so uh, it's not nearly as big as it was, but uh, I've started to nibble again because I think the valuation is getting somewhat attractive if you if you're willing to look out a few years. What where's the market cap? Uh, you know, to, <laughs> today it's in it's in the like 500 million range or so. I mean, yeah, it's uh, you know it started at yeah today it's 495 million market cap. Right. And so, how does something like that go public? When, how long has it been public? Yeah, so that, that's a that's a great question too, um, because this company was uh, as an interesting background. So they basically they started a very long time ago, uh, basically at the in the advent of the internet, basically trying to become a uh, basically a hardware uh, option for hardware slash software option for facilitating online payments, somewhat like a PayPal with like this hard hardware component. Now, obviously, that failed. Um, but as a result, they became a payment processor. So they have all the tech, they have all the technology on the sort of payment processing side. They sort of are hooked up with, with sort of Visa, MasterCard, et cetera. And so, um, then they stumbled into, they applied that technology to, uh, farm, the sort of pharma copay industry. So basically facilitating various, uh, you know, typically debit cards to, um, help with copays for patients to make drugs more affordable, working with pharma companies. Um, and then they sort of stumbled their way into the plasma industry. So Wirecard was, you know, uh, almost 100% of the industry at the time. Wirecard wasn't, didn't really care about small centers. So while the majority of the plasma industry is run by, you know, a few very large publicly traded players, there are small mom and pops that may have a center here, a few centers there. And 
Wirecard didn't really want to work with them. So, you know, 3P, now PaySign, had the opportunity to work with those guys, and they did well, and eventually they won some bigger centers, and eventually uh, Wirecard sort of stumbled in servicing the larger players, and they were able to win centers with the, with the really big guys. So now they have over a third of the industry. I think they'll get to two-thirds over the next several years. Um, they're, they're getting a major- they're just a much better option than Wirecard, and um, as a result, they're winning significant share. That's very interesting. So, so let's talk about uh, Expel, which we discussed a little bit earlier. That's the the wrapping in the cars. Can you tell us a little bit? About how did you find it, and and how do you size the how do you assess the opportunity there? Yeah, so I, I can't take credit for finding that originally. It's been pretty well documented on Microcap Club by a lot of you know very smart uh, investors for many years, and. I'm a member of the club and stumbled upon it. And, you know, it's, it's based in San Antonio and I'm based in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So it's not that far away. And, uh, you know, it had sort of phenomenal growth. It was a very niche industry. I would, I would categorize this in sort of talking industry structure. This would be similar to PaySign, a very niche and also a very niche industry. And in the case of Expel, pretty new. Um, like this is not an industry that's been around forever in a meaningful way. And so, uh, but Expel is definitely the leader. Um, like they're, they're purely focused on it versus some of their competitors, which it may be a subset of a much larger company. And so they're, they're very much the leader, the thought leader, uh, the brand leader in the industry, growing very quickly with a niche product that many people don't understand. I mean, before I started reading about Expel, I'd never heard of pay protection film. It's kind of like, I didn't know anything about it. So that kind of interested me. And then you know, I went and visited the, the CEO, uh, Ryan Pape, in, um, at the headquarters in San Antonio, and really impressive guy has done a phenomenal job with the business and, uh, you know, started doing my sort of whole process, developing sort of three to five year view and um, ultimately decided it was a pretty attractive industry and growth for, for the price and, and sort of invested. Did you uh, go and wrap your car when you were? You know, it's funny. I actually had an appointment at their headquarters to wrap my car, uh, but they were so busy uh, at the time, which was obviously a great sign. Uh, but they were so busy, I was going to have to wait like a couple hours. And, uh, you know, I was with my wife at the time. I didn't want to like get a rental card and then have to come back. So I didn't get it wrapped, unfortunately. Uh, but hopefully that will change. Uh, what, what, what's the cool. reason for getting it wrapped? It, it protects the car at a, at a lower price. Is that the idea? Well, yeah, there's, I think, yeah, basically the idea is you can make a new car stay looking new for a long period of time. So, which, you know, can help the resale value, but also if you're just really into your car, like you want it to look good, look new, look shiny and not have like rock chips all over it. Right. So, you know, some people put Expel on part of their car. Some people put it all over, but you know, like a very, very high percentage, I think like over 80% of like high end cars, like Ferraris, Lamborghinis will get X, will, will get film put on it. So like, this isn't like some ticky tack product. People are putting this on, you know, $300,000 cars. Um, and increasingly putting it on, you know, other cars as well. You know, it costs, it, it depends on the model and whatnot, but, you know, a full wrap for the entire car may cost, you know, uh, a few thousand dollars. Uh, but, you know, it, relative to the price of the car, like making it look new for several years is, is worth it to a lot of people, particularly car enthusiasts. And is it manually applied? How does it, how does it get put on? It is, it is manually applied. So there's software that basically helps cut the film to um, to be applied to a specific model of a car, so it's you know fairly complicated software for cutting, but then it's manually applied by you know a professional installer who's fairly well compensated because it's it's not easy to do and you need a lot of training to do it because if you apply if you apply the film in a in a 
you know, sort of haphazard. Like if I tried to apply the film, it'd look terrible. You would wish that you didn't have the film on your car. You need somebody who's like well-trained, has a lot of experience. And so, um, yeah. And this is distinct from the kind of colored wraps that you see. Like there's a lot of colored wraps in LA on expensive cars and less expensive cars. It's different from that? Yeah, this is typically a, a transparent film, so you can't even really see it. Um, but it, it sort of protects, it, yeah, it, it, its primary goal is aesthetics and also protecting it against, you know, various forms of harm. Oh, man, that's super interesting. So I think we're coming up on time. Uh, if folks want to get in contact with you, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, so the first way would just be my website. So it's www.altafoxcapital.com. I've got a lot of information on there. You can sign up for my distribution list there as well, read some of my past quarterly letters, and occasionally I will post a high conviction investment thesis there. Um, and then also uh, my Twitter handle, uh, which is just at altafoxcapital. Um, I, you know, tweet there occasionally. That's a good way to follow me. Um, so I, I would say those are probably the, the two best ways. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, Connor Haley, Alta Fox Capital, thank you very much for spending some time with us today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it.